Troopany, and welcome back to Telling Stories. This week we continue our profiles of Mark Rollerball Rocco and number one, Mighty Jones. Two of the best British wrestlers of all time, and two of the most influential professional wrestlers in the world. This week we look at their foreign travels and how they influenced New Japan Pro Wrestling, Stampede, and other places outside of the United Kingdom. And now ladies and gentlemen, this is a catchweight contest a match made over a time of 40 minutes, eight rounds, five minutes each round, two falls, two submissions, or a knockout to decide. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to present to you in the blue corner, the British light heavyweight champion, Marty Jones. And opposing him in the red corner, the British heavy middleweight champion, Rollerball Rocco. Rocco's showmanship and Jones' competitiveness made them ideal candidates for foreign travel. Jones caught on in Stampede, being asked to go over by the Dynamite Kid to help him introduce the British style more regularly to the Canadian audiences, where they both caught on. At different times on the international scene, there was New Japan Pro Wrestling. Jones was the first to go in the late 1970s, making it to main event tags, teaming with Antonio Inoki and Hulk Hogan. He was highly respected because of his background and became a popular worker over there. He was brought back to Japan in the early 80s to wrestle for the new UWF, Satoru Sayama and Akira's Maeda shoot-based promotion. He was the ideal man for the job. His love of the straight wrestling and mat work and his snake pit tradition gave him legitimacy to the fledgling promotion. Being a protege of Billy Robinson had distinct advantages. Rocco, on the other hand, stuck with New Japan. He was brought in to fill the mask of Black Tiger. Black Tiger was the nemesis of Tiger Mask, and the two had thrilling and highly rated matches in Japan, on a par with Tiger Mask's matches with the Dynamite Kid, but like Dynamite, he could never quite get over on Tiger Mask. In June of 82, with Dynamite and Tiger Mask out injured, Black Tiger lifted the WWF Junior Heavyweight title. He would drop it 20 days later, the belt returning to Tiger Mask. He continued to work with New Japan throughout his career, bringing a useful sense of continuity with the departure of Tiger Mask to the UWF and Dynamite to all Japan. He'd also have a hand in the development of the next generation of New Japan stars, helping them train as some of them became his future opponents. A highlight of his New Japan career must have been his one appearance at Madison Square Garden, challenging the Cobra for the WWF Junior Belt. However, perhaps the ultimate compliment is the Black Tiger character itself. The only man deemed good enough to replace Mark Rocco was Eddie Guerrero. Meanwhile, Marty Jones was back in the UK doing what he did best. Moving on from the Rocco feud, he continued to develop a body of work. With the sudden passing of London and Mike Marino in 1981, joint promotions came to a crashing halt. Marino was an institution. Making his name in the 50s being one of the first wrestlers on TV, his era-defining feud with Count Bartelli and holding Luthes to a draw, he was the ultimate made man and a genuine article in British wrestling. He had held the World Mid-Heavyweight Championship undefeated since 1964. To replace someone with that kind of pedigree is a big ask. Jones was clearly the only man to fill the position. Moving up to mid-heavyweight, he would win the tournament to crown a new champion in Bedford in 1982. However, his next rivalry may well have had the best pure wrestling matches in his whole career. Dave Fit Finley Jr. came out of Belfast with a wicked ring style and a natural intensity that echoed Jones in every way. Trained by his father, Dave Sr., and moving out on his own in the early 80s to the mainland, Dave played his trade very well, indeed. With his manager, Princess Paula, at his side, he was a great heel, having learned from the best in Ireland. As Dave recounted in the documentary The Fit Finleys, he believed his heel fire came from the fact his first character, young Apollo, was so bad he never wanted to hear cheers again. They would have a long and violent TV feud, 
over the title, exchanging it nine times in two years. I was actually there to see one in person. I remember the intensity of it all more than anything. Finley would be the first wrestler of me took close, outside the building by his red Ford Granada in the car park. He yelled abuse at the fans as we left. I related this story to Lance Storm by the miracle of Twitter last year and mentioned that Dave truly loved his gimmick. Lance kindly replied, That was no gimmick. Fit is fit. Which kind of terrified me even more. The series was electric and top box office wherever they went. Being a Leithorpe's memorial regular, I had not seen the size of the crowd at the wrestling event before and would be repeated up and down the country. The matches were heated, much like Jones and Rocco, but wrestling clinics as well. Two wrestling traditions came together with the British versus Ireland. While not overtly recognised, the Anglo-Irish sentiment at the height of the Troubles and no doubt played into the crowd's feeling towards Finlay. Though a proud Ulsterman, he always wore his trademark green tights and shamrock design that would stay with him right up until his last ring run in the WWE. Finley's pace was all about small, subtle ways of doing things that would annoy his opponents and the fans. It was a world away from the speed and aggression of matches with Rocco, but it worked very well indeed. Short headbutts, slaps, even the grinding of the forearm across the face during a pinfall attempts were executed to elicit the best reactions. It's what Steve Austin has stated so important for young heels to watch about Finley. Hooked up with a hugely over babyface like Marty, and they were on fire. Technically better than the Rocco series, it ended with Marty took the title for the final time in their exchanges in December of 1984. The feud had done its job. It had got Finley over as the star heel of joint promotions. Finley went back to the heavy middleweight division, taking the British title for the sixth time in 1984, and the belt would become a little more Celtic, feuding with Chick Cullen, another student of his father's Kung Fu, Eddie Hamill. Marty would move on to his next championship series of note, after All Japan regular Super Destroyer Pete Roberts relieved him of the title for a month in late 84. He went on a two-year run of holding on to the title, establishing himself once again as the premier wrestler in the class, and number two in the popularity behind Big Daddy. Joint, realising the world part of the world title belt needed to be honoured, brought in many European staff to try and knock Marty off the top step of the ladder. However, it was another Lancastrian would do just that. You just wouldn't think so from the way he was introduced to joint promotions crowds. The Warrington-born Stephen Wright, father of WCW's German star Alex Wright, was a good friend of Marty's having gone to the Snake Pit together and tagged in Germany for CWA and the Summer Tournament Series. While Marty had gone back home, Steve decided to stay put and went on to the strong career in Germany as a face and moved on to Stampede and Japan. William Regal noted that his standout achievement in New Japan was that he wrestled Tiger Mask one night and didn't even give him a drink of water. Rather than come back as a plain old Steve Wright, he'd introduced as Ball Blitzer, a goose-stepping heel having learned fluent German in his new home. In the time of yuppies driving BMWs and Alfie the same pet, and the general tolerance of the British working class having anything to do with non-British, Wright was something a totally different in a serious business of mid-heavyweight wrestling. By this time, Marty's finished manoeuvre, the power lock, was so over with fans, he was seemed invincible. So it's quite remarkable that Wright would take the title, but he did. The power lock, incidentally, is only used as a finisher, as far as I can tell, by one other wrestler, Shawn Michaels. It was taught to him by Jones's student, William Regal. With the belt off Marty for the first time in two years, the TV angle became his chase through the qualifiers to get a rematch. International combatants, some of them actually foreign this time, came from all over the world as Marty built momentum to the big showdown with Wright. Sadly, it was not to be, as Wright was tied up elsewhere and vacated the strap, the storyline reason being that he wouldn't face Jones again, fearing for his health. So the series finished with the two number one contenders in the world facing each other, Marty Jones and Owen Hart. In a match described by Kent Walton as the finest he ever saw in his commentary career, even now, that match still stands the test of time. Hart was, of course, trained by the Dynamite Kid, and his style meshed beautifully with Marty. A great chase and a breathtaking finale was sadly not enough to save wrestling on British TV, but there would be one more last hurrah for the Jones-Rocco feud.
Rocco had been busy in British rings, but as far as ITV and joint promotion was concerned, he was too violent for British TV. As joint lead booker Max Crowtree put it, the trouble with Mark was it had to be a fight. He had taken the newly formed World Heavy Middleweight title in 1981, his feud with Satoru Sayama predating the Tiger Mask Black Tiger outings in New Japan. By 1982, though, Mark's tenure with the joint promotions was coming to an end. Taking the title with him, he jumped ship to the non-televised all-star promotions run by Brian Dixon. Taking the belt meant that he was the lead worker for the company, who let him be himself, having matches that could be physically intense while letting him ship off to New Japan and Europe without interruption. He'd also bring back some of the people with him. By 1986, All-Star were now on TV, and Mark brought young Japanese sensation Fuji Yamada, now better known as Jushin Thunder Liger, with him to feud over the World Heavy Middleweight title. Their TV matches were breathtaking. Though run under Mount Evans' rules, it looked like they'd been transplanted from Kurokan Hall. In Rocco's final victory over Yamada, he rang Kent Walton about his incorrect move, calling, It's a grovet, Mr. Walton, called out to Ricky Chosu and Antonio Inoki, while performing their finishes and generally had a whale of a time. He was back, but it was still under ITV's rules. That meant straight wrestling matches with Johnny Saint and Danny Collins, which, though great, were really not what the fans had come to expect on the house show circuit. There would be, of course, one last fight between Marty Jones and Mark Rocco that would surpass their previous efforts in affrontery to ITV's family values. Realising that TV wrestling was going off the air, perhaps they had to cause a stir to encourage house show growth for everyone. They had one last non-title match that was a bloody mess. Rocco was split on the ring post outside the ring. Jones was so angry he tore the corner padding and began to whip Rocco with it. Needless to say, they were both disqualified, but the post-match promo was epic for a young man like mine. Rocco demanded two more rounds. Marty took the house mic and stated, that's fine with me, because if I don't split you here, I'll split you in the bloody car park. Then they brawled their way to the fire exit to leave our Saturday afternoons, sadly, in peace. While it wasn't the end of the road for either of them, it's best to leave their story there for now. Rocco and Jones changed the way wrestling was presented in the UK, worked and influenced wrestlers all over the world, and are only just getting their merits rewarded. As previously mentioned, Marty Jones is now part of the British Wrestling Council, and his work for the LDM promotion. Mark Rocco was the guest trainer at Teenage British Boot Camp. They signified a sea change in wrestling that would be influential on Japan, North America and Britain. And though they didn't always see eye to eye, they had a few dressing room brawls in their time, they did consider each other friends. I have a lot to thank both of them for as well, because without them, I wouldn't still be watching. And that's our show on Telling Stories this week. Rocco and Jones, the perfect pairing. Thank you very much for listening. My name is James Troopany. You can find the Troopany Show channel at Troopany Show on Twitter. You can find me at Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter. The music is by Sheriff Lone Star and Deputy Heartbreak. A song called Salmon Salad Boogie, which you can find at Bandcamp forward slash Sheriff Lone Star. Please go read our sponsors, Indie Empire Magazine, and I'll go watch our partners, powerslam.tv, where you can get a free month using our code MULLETWATCH. Are you looking for the newest and hottest in the world of pro wrestling? Then check out the amazing action on powerslam.tv, the biggest indie pro wrestling channel in the world. Get over 6,000 hours of the best events from over 150 of your favorite promotions from 20 different countries around the globe. Brands like Progress Wrestling, Evolve Wrestling, Combat Zone, Defy, PCW Ultra, PWX, Over the Top, Shine, and hundreds of others with fresh content added every day for only $5.99 per month. Get your free trial today at powerslam.tv.